Well, let's go ahead and get started. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this fantastic uh, book that you've given us, this word, this person, this transformation. Lord, I pray that today we will hear the word, we'll mix it with faith so it'll do us good. We will embrace this person, this son, this high priest who is uh, interceding for us at all times and forever. And uh, we'll be transformed. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for your spirit. Pray that he'll visit us today and um, enlighten us and illuminate us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Well, last time I spoke, we got taken to the woodshed a little bit. Uh, Let's look at Hebrews chapter 5. While you're turning there, I'll uh, recall that in Hebrews chapter 6, Paul made the point to us that there comes a point at which our opportunity for repentance closes. Uh, The children of Israel tested God ten times. And finally, he said, okay, you had your chance. You're not getting your inheritance. Doesn't mean he rejected them as children. Doesn't mean he rejected uh, their um, membership in the family of God as as the elect nation. What it does mean is they didn't go into the land and possess it. The promise that they had been given, which was theirs for the taking, did them no good. The window of repentance closed. He's emphasized in this book, the day for repentance is when? Today. Today's the day. You never know if your opportunity for repentance has passed. And then he says, you know, I I have great confidence that your window hasn't passed because you've done such great things. You've been awesome. God put up with Israel for ten times. I think He'll put up with you a lot more times. But that doesn't mean you need to wait. It means you need to get after it. In chapter 5, verse... uh, Let's start in the um, verse 7. Let's start in verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You're my son. Today I've begotten you, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. A son and a priest. We've talked about son being this title of of honor, of being elevated to being a position of great authority. And not only a ruler, but a priest. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of the godly, his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected or completed, teleosio, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. So then he goes on and takes them to the woodshed and says, for people who know what needs to be done and choose not to do it, There's a window of repentance and then it closes. Verse 10, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. And then he goes on to say, I do not want to lay again the foundations of the elementary principles, things like baptism and repentance from dead works. Um, eternal salvation. 
Well, you've, you know all that stuff. I don't, I don't want to lay those foundations again. I want to talk about what's really mature stuff. And what is mature stuff is talking about Melchizedek. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about Melchizedek. Now we have a little intro here, a summary of the whole Melchizedek thing. You're my son, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, so this is the Melchizedek sort of uh, uh, life experience here. In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries, this is 5 verse 7, and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son. Yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered, and having been completed, he became the author of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. We've already covered this, but just real briefly. Jesus needed to be saved from death. He was saved from death through resurrection. He is the author of our salvation from death. And in the context of Hebrews, we don't talk much about justification, the idea that we've been delivered from eternal separation from God to eternal uh, presence with God. We don't talk about that much. These are really mature believers that, have, that are getting off the path. We don't talk about that much. What we do talk a lot about is this ultimate salvation where death is completed, I'm sorry, is defeated completely and all creation is put back in harmony as it was intended. Man with man, man with God, man with himself, man with nature, nature with man. The whole creation's unhappy about this current state and is groaning for it to be put back in place. Jesus, through the suffering of death, has secured that inheritance for us. The fundamental question remaining is not whether we will participate in that. That's been taken care of through the justification of Jesus, the new birth. We have nothing to do with that. The question is, will we learn what Jesus learned? Will we be a son or will we squander that inheritance? That's the open question. So today, uh, we're going to cover three points. An oath, a man, Melchizedek, and a transformation, a new covenant. An oath, a man, Melchizedek, and transformation, a new covenant. So when he introduces Melchizedek after the proverbial woodshed experience... He says, all right, I'm going to talk about Melchizedek now. And let's just skip ahead a bit to 7.28. You can see in 7.20, once again, the, he quotes this psalm. But this time he says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn... And in 727, or sorry, 728, he says, For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who's been perfected forever. The word of the oath. Well, let's look at this idea of the word of the oath. And what I want to do is go through uh, Hebrews and briefly look at the uses of word as we go through the uh, as we go through the book let's uh, start with chapter 1 chapter 1 verse 3 who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. So what's the word doing in this particular case? Upholding what? Upholding what? All things. The word upholds all things. That's the word. Look at 2, verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, 
and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This complete deliverance from creation being skewed from its original purpose. In this case, what is the word? First instance, it's upholding all things. What's the word here? Uh, It brings salvation. But what is the word? It's steadfast. But what is it? Spoken. Spoken. So what are we talking about here? If every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how did God tell the people, if you do what I tell you to, here's what you're going to get, and if you don't, here's what you're going to get? How did he tell them? He spoke to them. How do we know that? They wrote it down. This is the Bible. Okay, The Word upholds all things. It's the power to hold, uphold all things. And it's spoken to us so we can know the consequences of life. Look at 4, verse 2. I'll start with 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest... Remember, you rest when what? You're finished. Let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Finishing. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, the Israelites that fell in the wilderness. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Again, this is the spoken word. The spoken word has immense power, has transformative power, but not if you don't believe what it says. Look at 5.13. For the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So here, what's the word do? It's a revealer. It's a judge. 412, yeah, 412. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God comes in and makes a discernment of are your thoughts productive or non-productive? And again, that makes sense, right? Your thoughts are are primarily in what? The words. Uh, The Word in your thought creates a, an emotion. The emotion creates an incentive to act, and then you act. That's the way we operate. Well, the Word of God is a discerner of the heart. It upholds everything. It, and when spoken, tells us the consequences of life. It only does us good when it's mixed with faith, and it is a discerner of our hearts. Look at 5.13. We read this just a minute ago. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. This is the spoken word again of God, which we have through the Scripture. And if you want to be skilled in it, what do you have to do? You have to work at it, right? That's what we're doing today. We're working. This is not, this is not entertainment. Because we want to be skilled in the word of righteousness. We don't want to be babes. Look at 6, 5. It's in, I'll start in 4. It's impossible for those who are once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. So this is the window of repentance closing for those of us who know what we ought to be doing and are just refusing to do it. We we talked about in the introduction. The good Word of God. The good Word of God is that which shows us the path. Shows us the place that God would have us go. The place where we're uh, following our inheritance. We're possessing our possession. And if we don't take that path... Eventually, we may lose the opportunity to walk down or to receive the benefits of the path. So that's not a salvation. 
This is not a salvation from heaven to hell issue. That happens when we're born. Uh, you, you, once you lose your, uh, uh, once you are saved from never having been born, then you're don't ever have to worry about that again. You're born. What we're talking about here is losing the inheritance. This whole book is about the inheritance. Are you going to inherit that which God has laid up for you? And it, it has a very present application. It's not just future, right? If we sow to the Spirit, what do we reap? Life. If we sow to the flesh, what do we reap? Death. Now. That's a very present thing. And that comes through the good Word of God. 7.28, we've already uh, mentioned. 7.28, for the law appoints a high priest, uh, as high priest, men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath came after the law. We're going to talk more about the word of the oath. 11.3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Isn't that interesting? This Word is a big deal, isn't it? It upholds all things. It created all things. It shows us the path. It's the judge of what we've done, the decisions we've made. It gives us the consequences. And they're sure. The Word. 12.19 You can see this is a theme in this book. Verse 18. You've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire, Mount Sinai. Small potatoes in comparison. And to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet. And the voice of words. Whose voice of words was concerning to the people there at Mount Sinai? God, so that those who heard it begged the word should not be spoken to them anymore. They couldn't endure what was commanded. They were afraid of dying. The word of God is immensely powerful. 13.7 Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. So this word of God that's written down to us is also can be conveyed by us one to another. It's a transferable word. And finally, 1327. 1327. 1322. There is no 27. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. This whole letter that Paul wrote to his good friends who had such a fantastic testimony, they lost their possessions and were glad because they know they have a more enduring possession in heaven, but had gotten a little hard of hearing and needed a little encouragement to get back on the right path, needed to hear what? Word. Word of exhortation. So not only when we preach the Word of God to one another are we giving power to one another, also when we share words of encouragement. The Word. Now let's go back to 7. And let's just look at uh, this word of the oath. Because he introduces Melchizedek in a very interesting way. And uh, sorry, let's start in 6. In 6.13, he says this. Because remember, we're moving on now. We're not, we're not going to talk about eternal salvation and baptism and all that elementary stuff. We're moving on to maturity. And if you move on to maturity, you talk about Melchizedek. That, that's what Paul says here. So if we can't understand Melchizedek, we're going to have a hard time maturing through this letter. But we're going to make sense of it today. 6.13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. 
Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Now here's the point, I think. If you're a Jew, do you believe that God's oath to Abraham is effective? You do, don't you? Do you ever question that God's oath is ineffective if you're a Jew? You know, that doesn't come into account at all, right? Jesus chided them for this, remember? You say that you're uh, beloved of God just because you're born into this family of Abraham. But Abraham is the father of all those who believe the promise. You've kind of missed the point. No, no, you absolutely believe that this swearing that God has is forever. Well, he, he says, well, if he swore that, then if he swore something else, it would be forever too, wouldn't it? And he comes over here in 720. And again, we're talking about Melchizedek, high priest. And he says, inasmuch he was made a priest, and is it inasmuch as he was not made a priest without an oath, for they've become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, then he quotes this psalm, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become surety of a better covenant. Okay? So the first point is an oath. Who made Jesus Melchizedek? Or this uh, made pre- a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? God did. And how do we know that it's for real? He said it. And he, did, and he emphasized it by saying what? He swore by himself. Okay? If you believe that the Jewish nation is something that's going to endure, then you need to believe that Jesus being a high priest is something that's going to endure. Now, why would this be so important to a group of Jewish believers? But Jewish believers, remember, we've gone over this several times, but they still do the temple sacrifice. They still do the, uh, uh, the uh, what do you call those, festivals. They're Jews. And in Acts 15, we made a very clear decision at the, at the Jerusalem Council that the Gentiles are going to be Gentiles culturally, and the Jews are going to be Jews culturally, and we're all going to be saved by grace through faith. But we're going to behave differently because we're from different cultures. So they're still doing all these things. So a high priest is a big deal to them. And the point he's making here is there's something so much bigger and better than that which we inherit as our culture. What's bigger and better is this Melchizedek. Okay? So that's the oath. That's the certainty. Okay? We've got a big deal here. Jesus is a really a high priest, and he really is, really, really, really. If you believe Jew- Judaism is chosen by God, you need to believe high priesthood by Jesus is chosen by God. So that's point number one. So let's go to the second point, Melchizedek. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 5, and we're going to read the entire knowledge in the Scripture about Melchizedek. Genesis chapter 5. And we're going to read all there is to know about Melchizedek in two verses. Genesis chapter 5. Nope. 14. I screwed up. Sorry. Genesis chapter 14. Verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, being Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. That's it. That's all the Bible says about Melchizedek. The, The background here is that Abraham got attacked and... uh, Various of his household and, and servants were carted off as slaves, which is something that has been done 
in tribal warfare since the dawn of time. And he took a, a band of uh, uh, warriors from his little tribe there, I think it was 300 and something people, and they went and slaughtered the, the, the captors and took their stuff back. And word got around, hey, Abraham won this ba- battle, and everybody kind of came out to congratulate him. And he meets this high priest, Melchizedek, and Melchizedek gives him this blessing, and he pays a tithe. That's it. That's all we know. But the other time, and, it, and it's this, this, is, uh, this word shows up twice in the Old Testament. This is one. The other is that psalm that keeps getting um, uh, repeated in Hebrews. I've sworn and will not relent. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, sure. His name in Hebrew would uh, bring about a profoundness because Melchi means my king and then Zedek means righteousness. And so um, he's not only a priest, but he's a king priest. And what the Jews were used to was Aaron's line being priest and Judah's line being king. And so they, I don't think they have the mentality to that it could be both. Okay, yeah, Matt's making a good point here that uh, king, king, king of righteousness and prince of peace, because Salem means peace, shalom. And so, King of Righteousness, uh, Prince of Peace is, is what Melchizedek's about, and it's a type. So it's not so much that studying Melchizedek is the important thing, it's the, it's the type that matters. And the big deal here is, he's a king and a priest. Uh, that's an excellent point. It's the son and the high priest both. Okay, so let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7. And what this Melchizedek did that's such a big deal is he offered a better sacrifice. Let's look at uh, 26. Such a high priest, Melchizedek, was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those high priests, these guys that we're familiar with, that we go to the temple and everything, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus' sacrifice of himself was his one-time sacrifice as the high priest over all. Well, so what's the big deal? Look at chapter 8, verse 1. We'll see a summary of what Paul's trying to get to with this Melchizedek. Now, here's the main point, he says. Here's the main point. Talk about Melchizedek, talk about moving on, maturing. Here's the main point. We have such a high priest. We've got one. Now, just think about this. If you had the choice between a man high priest who had the same weaknesses that you do, who has to keep offering sacrifices over and over again for himself as for you, or you could rely on a high priest who once for all, for all time, has taken care of sins, has himself gone through everything you've gone through, understands where you are, and can help you gain your inheritance, which would you prefer? You see the contrast he's setting up? They've gone a little hard of hearing and they need to understand something. So the main point is, we have such a high priest. Now I'm going to go back through chapter 7, and I've gone through this a little different way because of my own weaknesses. I've stumbled on this chapter 7 for years. And what I think I've basically done is trying to got all wadded up in trying to understand this Melchizedek instead of just reading what Paul tells me about him. So I'm going to go through three things that Paul tells us we need to get out of this Melchizedek. And I'm not going to worry too much about trying to discern from those three verses we read in Genesis a lot of stuff. Paul tells us what he wants us to to know. And the first thing he wants us to know, three things, big points he wants to know about Melchizedek. First is that Melchizedek, Jesus as the order of Melchizedek, is continual. 
Okay, this priesthood that he has keeps on going. It's a 24-7 operation. Well, why is that a big deal? Why is it a big deal that Jesus' ministry for us never ceases? Why is that important? Somebody's awake all the time on the planet Earth, right? Nothing can drop through the cracks. He's always on the case. He promised to never leave us or forsake us. Okay, this is a big deal. 7-1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, king of, of peace, that is, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, that episode I just mentioned, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness. That's the name Melchizedek Matt was talking about. And then us also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, I could stop here and get all wadded up. I'm not going to. But made like the Son of God, remains a priest. What? Continually. That's the first big point. Jesus is always on the job. It's not like uh, priest hours from 9 to 3. It's not like the priests show up just on uh, temple days. He's there continually. Uh, he says it kind of a different way in 7.16. I think this is basically the same thing. Who's come not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, for he testifies you're a priest forever. It's not just continuous today, it's going to be continuous from now on. So the first thing we want us to know about this priestly function of Jesus is it's continual. The second thing he wants to know is that it transcends the law. Look at 719. I'll start in 18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect, complete. Remember, remember we did that word on teleosa. How do you say that, Wally? Teleosa. Uh, that means, that means uh, as far as you can see, we get our word telescope from it. Way out there. That which is completed, that which is finished, the finish line. The law doesn't do that. On the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. This will be our third point. We'll go into it in depth, but uh, the law doesn't bring us near to God. But this high priest brings us near to God. Isn't that what we want? We want to be near to God. The transformative power of the high priestly function. It's continual and forever. It has transformative power because it brings in a new covenant. And the third thing he wants us to know in verse 25, 725, is that... That doesn't make sense. Yes, okay, is that the salvation that he's giving us through this high priestly function, through intercession, saves to the uttermost. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, we've talked about these believers here. They, they lost their possessions and were glad because they have a more enduring possession in heaven. These guys have gone way down the path of maturity. Paul's chastising them because they're not, they're not heading toward the finish line. They're starting to get distracted and diverted. He doesn't want them to lose the inheritance which they've already been granted. That inheritance is to become like Jesus and be a son, to have this glory and honor to reign with Him, to sit on the throne with Him. He doesn't want them to lose that. So how do we get saved to the uttermost, to completion? Not just saved from never being born, but saved to become everything that we were intended to be. Well, we do it by taking advantage of the intercessory uh, ministry of Jesus. That's that's the only way we make it. We can't make it by good deeds. We can't make it by by devotional um, uh, discipline. We can't make it through biblical knowledge. We can't make it through um, 
good friends and good associations, as good as all those things are. The only way we can make it is through the intercessory ministry of Jesus, who's been before us. You see the point he's making? This is maturity. Knowledge is important, but maturity is understanding the intercessory ministry of Jesus and taking advantage of it. Remember, Jesus wants us to be what? Remember, remember this from past time? What does Jesus want us to be? He wants us to be a hero. Your hero desires and dreams from when you're little. You want to be a fireman or you want to be a football player or you want to be a princess or whatever. Those are there because God put them there. And we tend to have them dashed by the realities of life because this world can't give us that. But God promises it. And if we will follow the path that He has blazed of the obedience of suffering of death and staying faithful to Him through this intercessory capability or ministry, He says, I want to restore you to everything you really desire. It's an amazing inheritance. Let's don't throw it away. So now let's go to the third point. We've talked about the oath and the Word. The Word made sure. The Word, the the Creator, the Sustainer, the Informer, that which shows us reality, the Discerner, the Judger. By that Word, God appointed Jesus as High Priest. We talked about this High Priest function having an immense ministry to us, this Melchizedek function. He's not just a son, he's a high priest and he ministers for us continuously. He ministers to us perpetually and he wants us to win. So let's talk about the third point which is that this high priest ushered in a new covenant. Let's look at 8 verse 10. Start with 9. Behold, well let me start with 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, that's the covenant of the law, then no place would have been sought for a second. We didn't need Jesus if the law was sufficient. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. This is a quote from Jeremiah. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day which I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. So why is he going to get rid of the first covenant? Don't miss this. Why is he getting rid of the first covenant? It didn't work. Right? Okay. Yeah, and and it's going to be broadened too, but it didn't work. See, God is not insane. When something doesn't work, He doesn't keep trying to do it, right? So He's changed. He's going to get a new one. Verse 9, Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. They, They died in the wilderness. They didn't get their inheritance. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. This is the Jeremiah quote. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. we got the same law. What's the difference? He didn't change the law. What did he change? He changed where it was. I want it on your hearts and minds. Instead of writing it on a rock for you to read, I'm going to write it right on your heart. Yeah, right. That's right. The law itself said this is what's coming. Okay? So, I want to do a little sideline here to talk about on the heart versus on the outside. I'm going to bring it into something that we're more familiar with. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2 verse 17. Look at Galatians 2 verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Now let me ask you this. Is it a good thing to be seek to be justified by Christ? Is that a good thing? 
It's a good thing to seek to be justified by Christ. What all things would you do to seek to be justified by Christ? Now, you. What would you do to seek to be justified by Christ? Do you seek that which you already have? No. No? Okay. So that means you do not have justification if you're seeking it, right? So what would you do to seek to be justified by Christ? You're already justified by Christ. Is it a good thing to be seek to be justified by Christ if you're already justified by Christ? It's not a good thing. This is kind of tricky, right? Because being justified is a good thing. But you only seek that which you do not have. But you know what we do? We do it all the time. I do it. All of us do it. You know what we do? Seek to be justified by Christ. That's what we do. And how do we do it? Yeah, we set up we set up rules. Look at verse eighteen. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. See, the law has been ended for those who are placed into the body of Christ and His death, and we're free from the law. But we rebuild it again, don't we? And I seek to be justified. I seek it in your sight. I seek it in the sight of God. What are some ways that you seek? To be justified. I know I'm okay because I I was baptized. I went to church this morning. If I go at least three times a month, then I know I'm okay. I don't say certain words. I'm better than Tim. Yeah, or or you make up. You know, pick whoever you know doesn't have the same problems you do. And say, I don't have that problem, therefore I'm okay. One of the things that blew me away when I went to Africa is to see... You you can see other cultures easier than your own, right? And over in Africa, it's pretty much... If you drink banana beer, you just pretty well just hit the trap door and go straight to hell. One sip, you're in. That's kind of the way they they do things there. Uh, You can steal the offering. Lie to the missionaries extort money from organizations, that's no problem. Well, we don't worry about that, not one bit. But that banana beer, I'm telling you, you just go straight to hell. Well, that's, that's what we do. It's easier to do life this way. Why? Because we have the illusion that we're in control. I'm going to give you two examples. One is tax receipts. You can look at studies of income tax receipts, and no matter how they change the rules, 90% marginal tax rate, 20% marginal tax rate, the tax receipts are the same. Okay? Well, why is that? There's a certain amount people are willing to pay. And no matter how much the rules change, that's what they pay. Because the rules don't change what? Your heart. All the rules change is the path you take to get there. And that's why this new covenant, God wants to write on our hearts. He wants to change what our desired destination is, not how we get there. The second illustration I'm going to give you is a body joke. I would never tell this joke as a way of softening up the crowd in church. It just wouldn't be appropriate. But I've got to tell it to you as an illustration of our twisted hearts. A man went into confessional and he said, Forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. I've committed adultery. I've been doing it for months. And the priest said, Oh, is it Jane Smith? And the guy says, Father, I just don't think it's appropriate for me to kind of divulge names. He said, Oh, okay. Was it Sarah Jones? And he says, Father, I just don't think that's appropriate. I, I, he says, oh, okay, well, put $100 in the plate, say 15 Hail Marys, and you're absolved. So the guy leaves the confessional, he's walking out the, the uh, door, and on the way out he sees a friend of his, he says, hey, how's it going, Dave? Did you get uh, absol- absolution? He said, yeah, and I got two good prospects, too. <laughs> okay. So what are we doing there? We don't want the consequences, but has our heart changed? That's funny because 
It's true. It's the way we are. Um, I've used this illustration many times, but, you know, Anna Lee getting caught with the chocolate, and her response was, I wouldn't have done it if I would have known I was going to be caught. <laughs> that was her rationale. Is this, does this have to do with what Romans uh, 3.31 says, which is, uh, by this faith that we may void the law, no, rather we establish the law, that it's more of something that just pours out of us? Well, uh, what, Ro- what Romans 8 says is that, in Galatians 5 both, it says, when we walk in the Spirit, we fulfill the law. So, it's, the, it's, it's what the law is trying to get at that's the important thing, not the rules themselves. If we focus on the rules themselves and not, the, and not change the very root of things, then we'll always just end up justifying ourselves. Okay, so... Let's just look at the lead-in to 2.17, and I think this is a really important point. Look at uh, 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So it's real interesting here because the foundation for this entire understanding of what he's trying to get to with Melchizedek and the new covenant, the entire understanding, the foundation of it is we should not seek to be justified. And why? We've already been justified. Now think about this. If we're seeking to be justified, who are we relying on? Ourselves. Who does Paul want us to rely on? Melchizedek. He's a priest continuously. He intercedes for us 24-7. He himself gave us the example because he cried out with godly fear to him who could save him from death. And he said, I can of myself do nothing. This Melchizedek lived the perfect dependent life. In all things and in all ways. Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to go through this. However, your will be done. This is the point. And it's so difficult to get out of all these different kinds of self-justification. In Midland Bible Church, how are we most likely to be self-justifying? Knowledge, knowledge is the big one. Okay? As long as I come and learn a whole bunch of stuff and know a lot of theology, then I'm justified. When knowledge without the change of heart and the application just puffs up. Now, knowledge is incredibly important. It's the foundation for everything. The Word is what changes things. And the Word brings knowledge. So it's not that knowledge is wrong. It's that knowledge is insufficient. So we've got this word, the oath that appoints Jesus. We've got this new this ministry that Jesus has of interceding for us. We've got this transformation of a law written on our heart. So what we're going to do next week is we're going to get into what actually happens in that in that tabernacle in heaven. Because see, Jesus, as a high priest, doesn't go into the earthly tabernacle with the little bell around his ankle and sprinkle blood on a mercy seat that has the Ten Commandments and the Aaron's rod that budded inside of it. That's what the earthly priest did. What Jesus does is he enters the true tabernacle in heaven that the one on earth was made a copy of. And there is one. And he enters in and he sprinkles blood. And he doesn't sprinkle blood so God just passes over. He sprinkles blood because we have boldly approached the throne of grace to find help in time of need. And we can have our hearts cleansed from an evil conscience so that we're free to do good works. Do you have guilt? Do you have regret? Do you have hidden sin? 
Do you have bitterness that you harbored? Doubt? There's a place for all that. And it's right there in that heavenly tabernacle. And Jesus has paid this price once for all. And He wants to cleanse all of your rottenness so that you are free to fly and become this hero of the universe through serving where God has put you. This message is so liberating and so empowering. And the main thing standing in the way is us. Don't let there be any evil person like Esau who for a bowl of stew sold his inheritance. That's what's at stake here. Will we finish? We know a lot. Will we finish? We have this immense power. Will we use it? God wants us to be a hero, an inheritor of the universe, a son sitting beside him to share his glory. Will we possess it? Thanks God for this amazing insight into your ministry of not only king of righteousness, but priest of peace. I pray that we will just come to grasp that you want us to succeed and win. And you're ready to cleanse our hearts. And as we go through these next weeks, as we just ruminate on this phenomenal thing that you've offered us to do, help us set aside our wickedness and overflow of evil and receive the implanted word which is able to restore our souls, preserve us from the death that we are so prone to go back into. This self-justification, self-elevation. Thank you for this promise, Lord, that if we humble ourselves before your mighty hand, you'll elevate us in your time. Thank you for this ministry of uh, priesthood that we can boldly approach your throne when all is lost and we have no other place to turn and you will provide. God, help us know that every day and every moment is a time when we have no one else to turn and just learn to depend and rely on you even as you did your Father in your earthly ministry. Thank you, God, for uh, each other. May we speak words of uh, exhortation to one another in a way that stirs us up to love and good works. In Jesus' name, amen.